Welcome back to Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jagay, joined again by Alex Cabot at Lambert from Birchwan Financial. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to be with you. Yep. Great to be here, Jag. It's always a, always a good time, and uh, we always have interesting things to talk about, and this time is no different. We, we find this topic fascinating. Well, as a layperson with no financial pedigree, I find this really interesting, too, and there are many different sides of it. Today, we're talking about the job market in the U.S. You know, as we've talked about in the past, job opportunities for workers at this point are plentiful. But every coin, of course, has two sides. Not everything about the job market is ideal. So we'll do uh, good news first before the bad news. Alex, let's go to you. Why is it such a good job market? Of course, you're going to give the good news stuff to me because I'm the eternal optimist, right? But that's okay. A couple great things about the employment market right now. Number one, there's three main points I want to discuss. First, the unemployment rate. Uh, the unemployment rate is extremely low right now. From its peak in the mid-teens during the height of the COVID lockdowns, the unemployment rate has fallen to a remarkable 3.6%, just about the lowest it's been in 50 years. Don't they say under five is good? Anywhere in the four to five range is pretty normal. Uh, once you get below four, then you start looking at, wow, this is approaching about as full employment as we can get. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't tell the entire story. I know Ed is going to talk about that a little bit later on. But, you know, just it's the lowest it's been, just about the lowest it's been in 50 years. And that's down from the highest it had been since the Great Depression just, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago, I guess it was. So when we, we look at that remarkable shift of very good unemployment to the COVID crisis and unemployment spike to you know, the worst we've seen since the depression and now back down to basically the lowest it's been in 50 years all over the span of 24 months, that's a remarkable swing to see in, in such a short period of time. I'm getting whiplashes here and you explain it. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of things were causing whiplash throughout this time and, and certainly employment was one of them. And the thing is, I mean, most people out there who want to work are working right now. And, and that's what we're told by this, this very low unemployment rate. There just aren't a lot of people who are actively seeking employment. Uh, as an aside, unemployment typically rises about twice as fast as it falls during normal spikes in unemployment. And that's not quite the scenario we saw during COVID, but again, that was somewhat of a bizarre situation. I mean, we haven't dealt with an issue like that economically in this type of environment ever. Um, the last time we had anything as significant as the COVID crisis was over 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. So it is somewhat of a different situation, but on average, unemployment typically goes up faster than it comes down. But just to sum that up, it's fantastic that so many people who had lost their jobs at the beginning of the COVID era uh, were able to find work again and are now employed if they so desire. The second bright spot of the employment market right now, which actually to some extent is, is not a bright spot, but Ed's going to cover the pessimistic side of this uh, on the other side of this uh, the podcast. There are 11.3 million job openings in the United States right now. Uh, there's a survey that we keep track of called the JOLTS Report. The JOLTS stands for Job Opening and Labor Turnover Survey. It's from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And 11.3 million help wanted signs are hanging in the windows as of the end of February. Wow. And when I say hanging in the windows, I mean that figuratively speaking. Sure. I don't know if that's actually true or not. But there are 11.3 million job openings in the country. And with that much capacity in the job market, if someone really wants to work, it's likely going to be much easier to find a job than it would be if the market were tighter. 
And the availability of work also has the effect of improving employees' negotiating power for things like compensation and benefits. If more people are looking for workers than are looking for work, the power lies squarely in the hands of the workers. There's a lot of room for lateral moves in companies. People aren't getting laid off uh, nearly as much simply because there aren't as many workers to fill the roles. So people are able to keep their jobs. Unemployment, uh, new unemployment claims have been very low for the last uh, last couple months. Alex, we hear in real estate, it's a buyer's market or a seller's market. We know right now it's a seller's market, kind of similar to this. Right now it's not an employer's market, it's an employee's market. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And if you're out there looking for a job, this is one of the better times that uh, that has been out there because there are so many people looking for help. And whether it's a service industry or in travel or tourism or financial. I mean, you name it. There's job openings everywhere at this point. We're just trying to to fill these roles. So that is a big advantage for people who are looking for work, and it bodes relatively well to keep that unemployment rate low. And then the final one that that I think is a positive thing, as COVID is is gradually ebbing, uh, we hope this will be kind of the final ebbing of COVID because we've seen COVID numbers go up and down and up and down, and hopefully they stay low for the foreseeable future. More and more people are returning to the office, but many workers discovered that they're just as productive, if not more so, while working from home. Yeah. We all worked from home for quite some time, and we were able to function, and we've had team members who have worked from home temporarily during the during the pandemic when most of us have been back in the office and employers for the most part took note that productivity didn't suffer that people were doing their jobs they weren't just goofing off and watching netflix all day they actually were being productive while working from home and in many instances big corporations have started to offer more flexible accommodation for workers who want to work from home part of the time or even sometimes all of the time uh, our building, just anecdotally, our building here, one of the companies that occupies quite a few uh, square feet out of our uh, out of our total in the office building we work in, they started coming back to the office full time. But it looks as though it's a relatively flexible schedule because when you look at it in our parking lot, it's the fullest it's been since March of 2020. Mm-hmm. But it's not as full as it was before. So it's nice. There's fewer cars on the road. You know, it's better for the environment. It's, it saves money for the employees who don't have to spend the money on gas and, and you know, wear and tear on the car. I think that's a good thing. Uh, as long as that productivity and conciseness when working from home, as long as we can keep that up, I actually think that bodes very well for employees. Uh, and it can bode well for employers because that's less space that they have to have. It's less sure. you know, benefits that they have to do in the office itself. So there are some advantages to it. Uh, all three of these labor market conditions that I talked about are very beneficial, in my opinion, to workers and people seeking work. But as you know, the story doesn't end there. There's never good news without some comparative bad news. So I think Ed might have something to say about that. So I'll stop talking now and I'll let you ask Ed any questions. One quick follow-up for you, Alice, before we turn to Ed here. I think about this I have a friend who has been working from home since the pandemic, and they have been extremely productive. And that friend is now looking maybe to move to a different company and find a new job. They don't need to find a new job. They're gainfully employed. They're working from home. But in this job market, as they look at LinkedIn and wherever they're looking for jobs, they say, I'm not taking a job that's not at least 60, 70, 80% remote. Most I'm going to go into the offices two days a week because I've been home since COVID. And I like working from home. I'm productive. I do a good job. I don't need a job where I'm going to spend the gas and everything to go to work. 
Yeah. And for a lot of people, that is extremely attractive. And I know people in the opposite boat who more than anything want to be in an office, want to be around people. They, they feel like they're just more productive and more connected. Um, personally speaking, I like coming to the office because it allows me to disconnect a little bit my home life and my work life. That's a challenge when you have a stressful job and, and there's a lot of outside factors that can influence how your day goes. If you're at home, when you're dealing with that, it's much harder to separate, at least for me. So I love coming to the office. I, and, and I don't live too far from our office, so it's not that difficult to get here. But I, I can certainly understand both sides of that. And with the increase in amount of flexibility, I think that's the big thing. Give people options. If they want to come into the office five days a week, great. If you want to work from home five days a week, great. As long as you can work, then it's effective. Employees are happy. Employers are happy because the work's getting done and everybody wins. It's funny. I, I run my business out of my home and I have my studio that I'm in now and I have my office that I use to edit podcasts and take phone calls and they are separate. I'm only in those rooms when I'm working and I keep that separation. That's how I keep my brain okay of separating my home life from my work life. And are you an at work guy or do you prefer to be at home or are you kind of somewhere in the middle? Definitely an at work guy. Yeah. You, know, you get in, you sit down in your chair in your office, you focus, right? And uh, like Alex said, just like him, I have problems balancing both. I mean, I, I work effectively from home, but it is nice to separate your work life and your, um, and your home life. We both have young kids. Uh, I mean, my, my kids are eight and 13. And my 13-year-old's pretty good about it, but my eight-year-old, when I started working from home full-time at the start of the pandemic, he was six. And you can tell a six-year-old until you're blue in the face, daddy's going to be on a conference call. You can't disturb <laughs> me unless it's really important. Okay, dad, no problem. And then five minutes later, you hear the little, yes, Jack, what do you need? <laughs> dad, I wanted to show you something I made on my iPad. That's okay. That's not an emergency. We need, to, we, need to, we need to work on our definition. He's much better about it now when I'm working from home. But that was a challenge for me. When you have young kids, it, uh, there were a couple great examples of, there was a guy being interviewed on CNN. His son or daughter, who was like a toddler, uh, walked into the room in the background. Yep, I remember that. That was viral. I, that went viral. I remember that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that, that I, it was so relatable. We all dealt with it. Yeah, we all dealt with something similar. I mean, if you have kids, there's definitely some some inter forgetting your cameras on and going in a certain room in the house. That one went viral. There was the lawyer who had to keep saying, "I am not a cat" when he had a filter <laughs> on unintentionally. We all saw a lot of it. There was a guy who had a filter of a potato. And the entire conference call, he was just a talking potato. Uh, and I, I don't know where that went. I think I saw that on uh, Facebook or something. But uh, yeah, we, we all face little, little hurdles, but there are hurdles coming into the office too. You have to find the humor in things. So I, I got a kick out of that one. Did you tell the potato filter guy that his ideas were half-baked? <laughs> oh, gosh. I got to remember that. I'm going to put that one in the dad joke repository. That was a good, that was fantastic. I Jack. don't have kids, but I'm of that right age to make the dad yes, jokes. And the radio absolutely. DJ in me isn't dead yet. All right. So we spent the first half of the podcast, Alex, talking about the good things about the job market. We opened it by saying there are two sides to every coin. So let's turn to negative Nancy, a.k.a. Ed. <laughs> Thanks, guys. What are some of the downsides of the current job market? Every coin has two sides, right? And to have an optimal economic environment you need balance, right? Like anything in life. Mm -hmm. Right now, there is a significant, significant imbalance, unprecedented imbalance between labor supply and demand in our country. Sure. 
And when supply of labor, workers, greatly exceeds demand, unemployment rises, wages grow at a very slow pace, consumer spending suppressed because, again, people are afraid if they lose their job, they may not be able to find another one. If you're working in a cubicle next to somebody who loses their job, you tend to worry for yourself a bit, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what often happens when there's a recession and unemployment rises, right? We saw this dynamic play out in a huge way during the 2008-2009 recession. I mean, it took years for the job market to fully recover and for consumer confidence to recover to pre-2008 levels, right? Now, this time, and this is fascinating, we're seeing the exact opposite effect. Like Alex said, there's 11.3 million job openings in the country, by far the highest ever measured, but only approximately 6 million unemployed workers. So there's almost two jobs for every person who's unemployed at this point. Wow. And this is the greatest labor market imbalance we've seen in many decades. I mean, you could argue we didn't have job openings numbers recorded in the late 60s when the unemployment rate was this low or the early 50s in the, in the post-war boom, but the unemployment rate was this low as well. But in our lifetime, certainly the tightest labor market we've seen. And, you know, it's, it's great for workers, right? They got lots of opportunities. They can negotiate wages. They can negotiate working conditions, so forth and so on. But, you know, what's the downside? First, if you're an employer, it makes it very difficult to find workers, mm. which makes it difficult to meet consumer demands, Aha. which leads to delays in people receiving goods, and services for that matter. It's not just importing things from overseas, Jag. You know, if you make widgets, we're back to widgets again. Yeah. And you can't get enough workers to make the widgets or package the widgets or, or whatever it may be. You can't meet the demands for the people who want to buy the widgets with all the money they have right now, all the money that was handed out in stimulus, all the money that was printed by the Fed over two years, right? Oh, that great widget shortage of 2022. Absolutely. The, the widgets analogy will never get old. So as a lot of these jobs are left unfilled, Jag, right, more work is being dumped on coworkers to pick up slack. And we've all seen this happen, right? It's very, very common. Oh, Yeah. You work with somebody who quits or retires, then their work is passed on to other people who feel like they're drinking from a fire hose while their employer tries to unsuccessfully fill the empty job. And, you know, this stress can increase the odds of coworkers burning out and either retiring or quitting. We, we've seen this happen. You know, we work with a lot of people who have switched jobs for better conditions. But we've also, you know, a lot of our clients are retirement age, have really enjoyed their jobs and have made the decision to retire because so much work's being dumped on their lap because other people are leaving, right? It's just not worth it at that point, yeah. Exactly. And next, you know, this extremely tight labor market, as employers are having trouble finding uh, workers, it drives wages higher, which in the surface, you think, wow, it's good, higher wages, right? Yep. But it's not actually all good. And the reason why is what economists refer to as a wage price spiral, okay? So follow this rationale. Workers demand and get higher wages because there's a shortage of workers, okay? Sure. Then employers have to raise their prices 
on the goods that they sell so they continue to turn a profit and keep the lights on, right? So their prices rise, which is consumer price inflation, right? Then workers come back to the employer and say, the cost of living is going up so quickly right now, I need a raise. I see, okay. And they get the raise, right? So it reinforces itself. It played out in a big way in the late 70s, right? And the longer it's left unchecked, the more it reinforces itself. So over the past year, as of March, hourly earnings in the United States have grown by about 5.6%. You think, wow, that's pretty good, right? You know, it's only typically a, a few percentage points a year. Sure. But most inflation measures over the past 12 months are much higher than that. You know, the consumer price index, which most people kind of track to measure inflation, is up around 8.5% over the last year. The Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the um, Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, or PCE, is up about 6.5% over the, the last year. So this suggests that even though the average worker has been able to negotiate higher wages, they're actually worse off than they were a year ago, right? Their cost of living has risen at a faster pace than, than their wages have. So Ed, if I'm understanding you correctly here, wages are going up, but you've got this spiral, this, this awful cycle. Mm -hmm. But because of inflation, while the actual number is going up, in terms of real numbers and what that salary can buy you in terms of goods and services, your wages are almost going down. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. And that's why when they poll Americans right now about their views on the economy, you know, the levels are coming in at very, very low levels. You know, you would expect that there would be a lot of confidence in the economy with this type of job market, right? But if you can find a job, but it's still hard to make ends meet, not because the wages are low, they've been going up, but because your cost of living is rising at the same pace or faster, and it's, you know, it's hard to pay your bills every month, despite the fact that you can find a job readily, you don't feel that good about the overall economy. Makes sense. Okay. Okay. So next challenge with this type of very tight labor market where there's, you know, shortages of workers is that it can create strategic challenges for our country. So for example, remember when the pandemic first hit? And there were shortages of all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Like PPE. And they were talking about, we need to start manufacturing ventilators domestically. We have some car companies here in Detroit do that, yeah? Yeah. And, you know, you think of uh, the compounds to make pharmaceuticals that were coming from overseas that stopped coming in. They're worrying about the prescription drug shortages, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody started talking about, we have to bring back vital manufacturing to the United States. So that if there is this type of disruption again in the future, or, or when there is this type of disruption again in the future, we can supply our own basic needs. And that sounds great, but it's quite unrealistic right now. I mean, where are the workers going to come from okay. to build these factories and to, to work at these places, right? I mean, we don't have enough workers to fill the existing jobs that are out there. And, you know, we kind of think the same goes to an extent with the massive and necessary, to an extent, uh, infrastructure plan that Congress passed at the end of last year, mm -hmm. you know, to rebuild the railways and the roads and the bridges and all that in the United States. I don't know where the workers are going to come from. They got to come from somewhere, right? And right now they're all already busy. Yeah. Um, it's just like we're all familiar with the shortage of uh, long haul truckers in our country, right? Yeah. 
it all comes back to, like I said, balance, a balance between supply of workers and demand for workers. And in a balanced labor market, that wouldn't be the case, right? You know, long haul truckers get paid quite well in a normal labor market with a normal amount of unemployment or a normal amount of unemployed people relative to job opportunities, they kind of tend to fill a lot of those jobs. So, you know, to kind of close it out, what's the solution? You know, uh, like you said earlier, and I think it's a great analogy, it's a great time for workers. It's not a great time for employers in terms of being able to find a job and negotiate working conditions and wages and so forth and so on. But honestly, because of inflation, it's not not a very good environment for everybody. So one solution would be comprehensive immigration reform. And we, we don't want to get political here. Okay, I'm curious why you would say that. You think about the shortage of workers in the country. There are a lot of people in this world who are very good workers who would be thrilled for an opportunity to come to the United States just like all of our ancestors did in the last 150 years generally, right? Yeah. To have greater opportunities for their families, okay? And if a lot of these people who are waiting for visas are allowed in to work, they can fill some of these jobs. They're not taking opportunities away from other people. If anything, they could take some pressure off of this wage price spiral and they could help to grow the economy larger because the rate limiting factor on the size of our economy right now, Jag, Lack of workers, right? You know, if there were more workers, employers could produce more things and meet demand, which would fuel further demand and so forth and so on, right? I mean, this is a discussion for another day. We're not picking political sides or anything of that sort, but it does seem that structurally in the United States, partially because of, you know, age demographics, it would certainly benefit us to work on attracting more high-quality workers from other areas of the world to immigrate to our country. You know, the, the argument against that was always they're going to take American jobs. Well, if all these jobs are unfilled, that kind of flies in the face of that. Absolutely. We need someone to take them. Yeah, absolutely. And Alex and I also believe, Jag, that it's not a zero-sum game. You know, the pie can actually grow. Okay. You know, the economic pie can grow. And the size that the economic pie is limited to is based on your innovation and your number of workers, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and if we are able to bring over more workers, and again, I I don't want this to be political because it's not by any stretch of the imagination, but we could certainly grow the economy at a faster pace. One of the things that sticks out at me that back to the middle of our podcast, when both of you talked about really liking to be in the office, and I've got to imagine That is because you really enjoy sitting across the table from your clients, talking to them about this stuff, what's trending, planning for their financial future and their families. If somebody wants to come into the office and talk to you or even call you or do a Zoom, whatever is easier for them, what are the best ways to find you? You can always find information about us on our website, which is birchrunfinancial.com. You can email our general box, uh, that's info at birchrunfinancial.com, so I-N-F-O at birchrunfinancial.com. Our office telephone number is 484-395-2190. You can always call us directly, and we are happy to have that conversation. Uh, I have had people call in with general questions that they've thought of while listening to this podcast. People that don't work with us, people who just listen to it, even if you're not a client, even if we've never spoken before, 
don't hesitate to call. We're always happy to try to disseminate as much of this information as we can. And there is one other little announcement I want to make in relation to the dissemination of good information. Okay. In just about two weeks' time, on May 10th of this year, we are very excited about the release of our new book, Mastering the Money Mind, A New Way of Thinking About Personal Finance. Ed and I decided uh, last year that we wanted to write another book. Uh, our first book, Nurturing Financial Freedom, where this podcast gets its name, uh, was published in early 2016. Uh, and Mastering the Money Mind is coming out uh, in a couple weeks. If you'd like a copy of it, you can get a copy of it either on Amazon uh, and you can download the ebook or you can order a hardback or a paperback. They'll be available for delivery just a little bit after the 10th. Or if you want a free copy, we have a whole bunch uh, that we're getting that we would be more than happy to give away if you're interested. Uh, send us an email, info at birchrunfinancial.com. We're happy to mail you one, and uh, we hope you find it useful. It's, a, it's an exciting thing. And this book is a little bit less technical than Nurturing Financial Freedom. It's more about the mindset around personal finance and around money. So things like, you know, what does money actually mean to you and what does it represent? And it's very exciting to release another book. And we hope that people find it helpful. Even if you can just get one little nugget of information out of it, we think it's worth it. So check the book out. We're, uh, we're always happy to uh, send out copies, or you're certainly welcome to, uh, to buy one yourself on Amazon if the mood strikes. Having listened to the two of you share your insight for the last two plus years on this podcast, I would really look forward to reading that book. Always a pleasure, Alex and Ed. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jag. Thanks, Jag. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot, not necessarily those of RJFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities markets or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or protect against a loss. Keep in mind, not all asset classes mentioned are suitable for all clients. Rebalancing a non-retirement account could be a taxable event that may increase your tax liability. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member of FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Advisors, Inc. Birchfund Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Birchfund Financial is located at 595 East Sweetsford Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.